All right. Hey, good morning, everybody who's in-house here. Good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are. If you have insomnia and it's 3 in the morning and you're listening to us later in the week, welcome. Glad that you guys are here. I can't tell you what it does to my heart to look out and see people in here after I announced that we were going to study Job, to actually have people here that like, okay, that didn't scare everybody away. And I'm glad. You are the hearty ones. You watching online out there who might be for the first time going, wait, he's studying Job? What else can I look at? Is there a puppy video on YouTube I can look at right now? Hey, I hope you stick with us because I think this is going to be a great series and I'll, I'll get into that in a minute. Hey, if you were, um, if this is your first time here, welcome. First time catching us online, welcome. We have, if you're online, whatever platform you're watching the message on, you should be able to go back and find archives so you could listen to our previous series. Our last series was called Treasara. It was about the 12 minor prophets. And um, I hope you got as much out of that as I did teaching it because, man, there's so much that's just appropriate to what we're going through today. And as we go into our new series, which we're kicking off this week, it's even more appropriate, I think, what we're going through now, that we look at the life of Job. So our study, our, our new series is called Blameless, A Study in the Life of Job. And there's so much there that I think is going to apply towards what we go through today. Now, I know, I know a lot of people are immediately going, that's such a downer of a book. We have, we know what Job's, almost everybody could at least give you a quick synopsis of what Job is about. And none of it's good, right? You look at that and go, oh man, why would I even? But I want to let you know, I think there's going to be something very exciting and very powerful that God does through this series. And here's how I know, because I had to wrestle with God on teaching this series. Not he wanted me to and I didn't want to, but I in my flesh started thinking maybe, because months ago, here's how it happened. Months ago, I was praying about where we lead with the next series, the next thing we teach on after the Minor Prophets, and God very quickly, very clearly gave me the book of Job. Okay, and I was immediately in my spirit, I felt like, oh, that's great. Then I started listening to people around me. I started listening to my flesh go, maybe people need a bit of a break in between the Old Testament minor prophets and judgment and these things that happen. And maybe, maybe you should do something lighter. So in my heart, I'm like, okay, I want to I wanna be warm and friendly. Let's, let's go a little bit lighter. And so I started going down this path of trying to figure out a lighter series that we could do, and the Lord would not let me. It's like, no, this is what I gave you. And that's been my history with, with my relationship with the Lord from the beginning. He speaks, and if I'm obedient, I can see how the blessing plays out in my life. But when I go against that, and then all bets are off. So I hope that you're with me. Stay with me. Stick with me through this series, at least through this introductory series. That's what this is. This message is kind of an introduction. We're not going to go hardcore, in-depth theology here. We're, I want you to catch the, the excitement that I have, the one that God has put on my heart for this series. And I think if you stick with me, you'll see that not only is the book of Job not a downer, but it is foundational to our ability to be able to trust in God, especially when things are bad, especially when the unexplained and horrific things happen around the world and to us and around us. When we see these things, can we still trust in God? I think this is foundational to our ability to do in that. And if there's a, if there's a basic mistrust of God's purposes and plans and his overall goodness, then can you really be sure that you can trust in the rest of the promises in the Bible? So I think that's why this is foundational. So let's, let's get into it. So I want to get into it, first of all, by throwing out a question. What are some perceptions that people, if you say the book of Job, what are some perceptions about what it's about? Anybody? Loss. Suffering. Suffering's number one. Loss. Suffering, loss. Anything else out there? The enemy attacking. Exact. The enemy being allowed to attack. These are all kinds of things, and there's so many questions. And that's those, 
Very common preconceptions. These, this is what we think. Patience, suffering. How about the idea of Job as being a human beach ball? That the devil and God are just batting back and forth for some kind of entertainment purposes. But the point is, the book of Job seems to bring up many more questions than it answers. Brings up many, many more. I just wrote down a short list of them here. Number one, first and foremost, I think, how could God allow bad things to happen to a good person? Job didn't seemingly do anything to bring this on to him. And we all know of people in our lives, or maybe it's even ourselves, where something horrific has happened. We're like, what did I do to bring this on? It brings questions. Then, how could God, as Gary said, how could God encourage, allow and encourage Satan to torment Job? How could that happen? And how does that fit into the idea of a loving God? Why does God test us at all? Um, Why does God allow pain and suffering at all? Couldn't he just take away all pain and suffering? He's, He's sovereign, right? He can do anything he wants. Why doesn't he just take away all pain and suffering and discomfort from our lives? Why doesn't he just do that? Can I trust a God who wouldn't do that? Can I trust in a God who will allow me or my loved ones or people I see go through those terrible things? Why should I trust in him? Mm. And then maybe another question, is Jesus Christ in any of this? Where is Jesus in all of this? I think we're going to answer that. But first, spoiler alert, the book of Job does not answer all of these questions. So if you're here thinking this is going to answer every question I've ever had, no. It doesn't do that. I can't do that for you. Holy Spirit can do that for you, but we'll talk more about that as we get into it. But it's going to leave us with a lot of questions. But one thing I know for sure is you're going to see a different way to look at pain and suffering, a different way, okay? And you're also going to see that Jesus is present in the life of Job and present through all of these trials, including those that we face today. Now, based on all that, what if I just told you this very basic concept that there is a completely different way of looking at the story of Job that doesn't fit what our preconceptions are, pain and suffering and loss? What if I told you there's another way to look at it, a more victorious way, a more hopeful way to look at the story of Job? I mean, and we've all seen how this plays out. And again, many of us are familiar with at least the basic story of Job, but a lot of our preconceptions are based on these these commonly held paradigms, right? A big word, a paradigm, is just a preconception kind of that we have. Here's some paradigms that I think we need to look at a little bit more carefully. Number one, we're taught from birth to see pain as bad and the absence of pain as good, right? I probably haven't lost anybody at this point. Okay, what about this? A storm is bad, calm is good. Okay, you're probably still pretty much hanging on. We're with you, we're with you. Okay, keep going. A trial is something to endure and get through as quickly as you can. Okay, I think probably still have. There's even a country song. The country song, if you're going through hell, keep on moving. Just get through it. Whatever you have to do to get on the other side of that trial as quickly as you can at any cost. How about this one? Very, very basic. God rewards obedience, punishes sin. I probably still haven't lost any of you because these are our preconceptions that we look at a story like Job and we go, okay, what did Job do to cause all this? He had to do something. If if God rewards obedience and punishes sin, Job's very clearly being punished. So therefore... But we'd be just like Job's friends in this story, searching, looking for something that somebody did to bring this upon themselves. And we're going to talk about that. But if we go through it looking at these paradigms, pain bad, comfort good, if that's our basic thought through all this, how then do we reconcile statements that we see in Scripture? Statements like the one that James makes to the disciples who have been scattered. 
Okay, now this is, this is New Testament scripture here. Now, the setting for this, for James writing this, this, what I'm about to share with you, is Stephen had been stoned to death for his beliefs. Disciples had been scattered from Jerusalem all over the place because of very real and very intense and severe persecution by the Romans. Okay, it was, this wasn't just playing around. This wasn't just you have to wear a mask and meet in small groups. They were murdering them. It was terrible. And they were being scattered all over. And James writes this to them. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren. How optimistic in that situation, right? When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How do we reconcile this idea of considering it joy when you encounter various trials? Remember, the trials he's talking about here aren't a flat tire on your way to work. These trials, this is, this is being martyred for your beliefs. Anybody else struggle with that idea? I do. I'm just being clear on this, transparent here. I struggle with this idea. And it's something I have to think about. Consider it all joy. How about not just when things happen to you, but when you see the innocent being victimized? How then do you reconcile that? How do you consider that joyfully? What if I told you there was another way to look at the idea of pain and suffering? Maybe a way that we haven't looked at that before. Or if we have more than just a passing glance. Now, I'm not talking about the, the you hit your thumb with a hammer kind of pain. That stepping on a Lego in the kitchen in the middle of the night kind of pain. Who's got kids and who knows that, right? I'm not talking about that kind of pain, that momentary. It might be severe pain, but it's momentary, and it will pass, and you know it will pass. I'm talking about gut-wrenching, heart-tearing pain that causes you to cry out, why? Why me? What did I do to deserve this? How could this happen to me? A cry of pain and a cry of anguish to which there is no obvious answer. This is the kind of pain I'm talking about. And that can be caused, there are many reasons why that kind of pain can come into our lives. It can be absolutely demonic Satan's attack. Absolutely that kind of pain can come from that. The bad choices that we make can bring that kind of pain onto us. Bad choices that others make can bring those kind of, that kind of pain onto us. But what about another reason? God's desire to grow you and bring you closer to him. Anybody going, wait, what? Rewind that really quick. What did he just say? Could pain and suffering be in part caused by God's desire to draw you closer to him? Could it be? Let's look at this. We're going to talk about now in this series, not so much today, but we're going to talk about some really fancy-sounding theological concepts. First one is called theodicy. Theodicy is a theological concept. You don't need to know much about it, but we're going to get into it. In its essence, it is, why do bad things happen to good people? And there's all kinds of, of scholars on all different points of the compass that have different ideas of why that is. But at its base, that's the question. We're going to talk about that as we go through this series. Sovereignty. Specifically, the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God that says, He is creator of heaven and earth, the king of the universe, the creator of everything, and he doesn't have to answer to you for what he does and why he does it. That sounds a little harsh, right? But here's our human nature. God, why did you do that? And if we don't get our answer, something's wrong. Now we start to doubt. Now we start to leave room for Satan to ask questions to us and tempt us to go down the wrong path, right? An understanding of a sovereign God who can and will do anything in his power and everything is in his power to accomplish his purposes. 
We need to understand that. The term omniscience. Omniscience means he knows everything that ever was and ever will be. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're going to think when you're faced with a situation. There's nothing that escapes his knowledge. And we, in our humanness, can never approach the level of understanding that he has. That's key to our understanding of how this can happen. And then another term, not so, not so hard to understand, but the idea of free will. How does free will pay, play into all this? Bad choices happen all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We saw bad choices. God doesn't want robots. He doesn't want people who he just says, do this when I say to do it. We have the free will to make choices, both good and bad. We make choices sometimes knowing that they're bad, and we'll still do it. That's the idea of free will, and God does not step in to stop that. We're going to talk about how that works, and I'll try and make all this stuff as clear as possible. Let me give you a quick example of how this worked in my life, okay? This will pertain to some of you. It will resonate with some of you and others it won't. But here's my story. 20 years ago, 20 years ago, I went through a gut-wrenchingly painful divorce. Here's how it happened in my life. I came home from work one day, walked into the house. My children were gone. My wife was gone. And all my furniture was gone. And so I sat in the middle of my living room, all by myself, quiet, empty house, feeling this pain and crying out, why did this happen to me? Now, I knew I, knew I wasn't perfect. I know certainly things I could have done better. But what? show me one thing I did that warranted this level of pain in my life. And I couldn't come up with anything that justified that level of pain. It was crushing. It was crushing down to every cell in my body was crushed with pain, and I didn't handle it well. I did not handle it as well as I could have. But even in that, God used this pain, this time of extreme crushing pain, to call me into something better. Something better that I didn't even know I wanted, much less needed. I didn't even know there was something better out there. See, I lived my life. I get up in the morning prior to this moment. I get up in the morning and eat breakfast and go to work and come back home, play with the kids for a little bit, put them to bed, go to bed, start over again the next day. And on weekends, we'd go to soccer practice and I'd watch their games and things like this. Okay, it was pretty much a treadmill of life. I didn't realize there was more. I didn't realize I really even wanted more. It was just what life was. But God knew. So I went through days on autopilot just existing, not knowing or caring that there might be something higher out there for me. Certainly not understanding anything about a calling from God. I didn't know it could be different. But God took that pain and he used it to refine me, to train me, and to prepare me for the blessing that he had for me. So did it grieve his heart that I went through all that? I know it did. I know that he saw my pain in that moment, and it grieved him. But in his omniscience, he said, just wait and see what I do with this. See what I have for you. And what he had for me is a partner who would walk alongside me as I pursued him with a passion that I never had before. A partner who would walk alongside me, a partner who, by the way, had gone through her own painful trial just shortly before mine, called us to come together not only and pursue him, but pursue a calling into ministry, starting a church. All these things are a result of a place that God called me out of that I would never have left on my own. There was no reason to. I'm fine. Get up, do my thing, go to bed, repeat. Why would I even want to? But he called me. He used the pain of my circumstances to call me out of this complacent place 
into a place where now I was passionately searching for him. And my relationship with him has gone to a place that it never could have if I stayed in my comfort zone. Growth doesn't happen in an easy chair in front of the television. It happens in a place of pain. So the question is then, can you trust in God despite your circumstances? Despite what you see around you? Despite what today looks like, what this moment looks like, or the pain you're going through at this moment, can you still trust in God? Despite what the media tells you, despite what well-meaning friends will tell you, and oftentimes what your emotions will tell you, can you still trust in him? Can you trust in him, especially when things don't make any sense at all? Can you still do it? Let me give you a couple biblical stories here, at least one. It certainly didn't make sense to Joseph. Anybody remember the story of Joseph, right? Joseph and his brothers. Joseph receives a dream. And in this dream or series of dreams, Joseph is told, I'm going to elevate you. You're going to rule over your brothers. People are going to bow down to you. You're going to be elevated to this place. And what's the next thing that happens to Joseph? He's beaten up and thrown into a pit. Well, that fits with what I just heard for sure. Can you imagine being in that place and going, okay, God, I'm pretty sure I heard you right, saw it in a dream, and this does not match up with that. But what did Joseph do? Joseph lived his life, long story, study for another time, but Joseph lived his life in a way based on the certainty of what he had heard from God. And he held on to that promise. And he held on to what God had given him despite his circumstances. He knew how it was going to turn out. And he was able to hold on and live in a godly way until that happened. And here's what happened, the end result, Genesis 50, 20. He's standing in front of his brothers, the very ones that beat him and threw him into a pit. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Can anybody else think of somebody who didn't deserve it, put through pain and torture so that many people would be preserved? Jesus Christ did that for us. And we see that, how that was used, that time of pain He was able to get through it and hold on in a godly way, and God used it. Much later on, the Apostle Paul will say this, Romans 8, 28. And we know, I think we got that on the screen too. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I've said it before, kind of lighthearted, like, what's all things mean? Just the good? Just the bad, those things that make sense, all things, which means everything that we know that God uses, everything that comes your way for good to those who love God. That word good, I do word studies from time to time. If you're new here, sometimes I'll pull out Hebrew or Greek. That word good translates to a a Greek word, and the Greek word is agathos. And agathos means, in in Greek, in its root, it means intrinsically good in nature, whether it be seen as so or not. Rather than just good or bad, it means good good to its very core, whether you see it that way or not. That's very, very telling when we see that this is what Paul is telling us here. So the question is, again... Can you have confidence that everything that happens to you will be used by God for your good, whether you understand it or not? Or do we insist on understanding how it works before we can trust in it? More importantly, can we do all that and consider it with joy, like we're told? How do you do that? If you struggle with that the way that I do, I think this series is going to mean something to you. I think it's going to shed some new light on how that works. So before we get into that kind of uh, part of it, let's look at the study of Job. Let's open up our look at this book by just doing a little background. 
when was this written and who wrote it and, and what was going on? Let's do a little exegetical study on this and look at what's happening. So first of all, the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Oldest book in the Bible. I know if you're flipping through your Bible, it's, it's a little ways through. I thought Genesis was the first. Genesis records the first things that happened, certainly. But Job was the first book actually written down in written form. I'm going to explain how we come at this. About 2000 BC or so is when this happened. About 2000 BC. Now, chronologically, or if you have a chronological Bible, if you've ever seen one of those, this is going to be somewhere between uh, Genesis 10, which is the account of the flood of Noah, and Genesis 11. So if you have a chronological, it'll go Genesis 10, and then it'll be the story of Job, and then Genesis 11, which is the Tower of Babel in that story. So that's kind of where it falls on, on the timeline of things. Now, how do we know this? First of all, I will tell you, we don't know this. Scholars differ. You can get two scholars of, of biblical history in a room, and they will differ on when and how and who wrote and all this kind of thing. Here's what I believe. I'm going to pass on what my study shows me and what I believe. I believe that it is the oldest written book in the Bible and that it was written by Job himself. Okay? And here's how I know this. Here's how I personally have come to this conclusion. Job lived about 240 years, okay? We know this by doing some math, which I won't go into now because that's really boring stuff. Apologies to mathematicians out there. But the Talmud tells us, the Talmud, remember, is the, is the Jewish companion to the Bible, to the Old Testament scriptures, and it tells us that Job lived about 240 years. The math backs that up. If we look at the ages that people in the Bible lived to, if we go back to, let's say we start with, uh, with Noah. Noah lived about 950 years, give or take, right? Then Abraham lived about 175, and then Jacob 147, Joseph 110. So there's kind of this predictable timeline of lifespans as it got more down to what we expect now today. If we look at the 240 years that Job lived, it places him right in that kind of period of the patriarchs, which is when Abraham was around, right? Many other clues put us into that time frame. Job had 10 children, many, many grandchildren. Scripture tells us, and we'll go into it later, that his friends were very old, okay? So very old at that point. Um, and then Job 42, at the end of it, this is the end of all of this study, Job 42, 16, 17 says, after this, meaning after all the stuff that Job went through, he lived about 140 years and saw his sons and grandsons, four generations, and Job died an old man full of days. Okay, so I believe that this figure of 240 years is pretty accurate. Now, here's another reason. That was the first reason. Number two reason why I believe in that time frame, there's no mention in all of Job of Israel, of the Exodus, of Moses, or, or any of the what have been modern themes at that time. There is a mention of the flood, okay? So, we, so Job knew about the flood, but didn't yet know about Abraham and the, new, and the covenant and all these things. So it's very important to understand. Um, number three, Job offers sacrifice. We see this in the scripture itself, that he offers sacrifice on behalf of, of his family and his children. Job 1.5 says, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, now we're going to look at this as we go into, pre, into the coming weeks, Job's kids were party animals to say the least. This was a regular part of their, their life. But when, that's, when they had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So he would, he would give an offering for each one of the, ch of the children. And say, he would say, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So he was constantly acting as priest for his family, again, putting him smack in the middle of the, what was called the patriarchal period, um, which we see ended at the time of Moses when that job then went into the priests. 
But up until then, it was the head of the family that was responsible for being the priest to his family. The fourth reason, I've only got six, the fourth reason of this is the language it's written in. It's written in a kind of, some scholars call it a Paleo-Hebrew. There are many people who study languages, linguists, and they'll look at words that were used. They see that some of the expressions and phrases and even the forms of the poetry that Job uses are written in a form that's partly Arabian in origin and partly Syrian, um, certainly not just straight Hebrew. But then we see a different language at the very beginning and at the very end that's a little bit more, still ancient to us, but a little bit more modern Hebrew style, telling us maybe there was some editing that went on from, from Moses. We don't know this for sure. But also, God himself calls Job the most blameless and upright man on earth. Now we know that as time goes on, uh, Melchizedek and Abraham are also given those kind of titles. And if they existed at this time, God wouldn't call Job that. Job and his friends also had an access and a familiarity with God that went away in the temple period, went away with, the, with Moses and the Exodus. When, as soon as the, the Spirit of God had to reside in the temple, that intimacy went away. But Job and his friends clearly have that level of intimacy. We'll talk more about that uh, as we get into it. But I want to point out why I think this is so important. I think it's important to understand this because God knew that we would need the ability to reconcile some of these very basic questions. Because you can follow God with all your heart and all your soul and do everything in a blameless fashion as we see that Job did and still bad things happen. Why then would you put your heart and soul into following a God like that? Remember, this was a time of polytheism, so there were, there were plenty of other gods out there, small g gods, that they could have said, well, this one's not treating me right. I'm going to grab onto this one and see if he treats me any better. It was very commonplace at that time. But I believe that God knew that not only that, but Abraham and Joseph and Moses would all need that kind of encouragement as they went through their own trials to know that God was good. Foundationally, God was good, whether they understood it or not. And the book of Job helped them to understand it, and I think it helps us to understand it. And God knew that which is why it's where it is. Now, in, your, in our Bibles, it's placed much farther in. That's because of just a human decision to bunch Scripture together in certain ways where wisdom books go in one place and prophets go in another. So it's got nothing to do with the timeline that it was written in. So more about the book itself. We know that Job lived in this land called Uz, U-Z. It's in northern Arabia, kind of next to Midian. If you remember Midian from Scripture is where Moses kind of hid out or so for about 40 years. It's in that place. We've got a map here. Now, it's not exact, of course, but I like to see things. It just kind of helps me get a picture of what's going on. This is Midian down here in the, in the circle. Um, the area of, of Uz is right up here between Midian and Edom. It's kind of right up in that area. Much ancient place, and it's not even listed on the map here, but that was the region. Edom, we know, is south of, of Israel, and Israel, the nation, is like, you see Jerusalem at the very top of the map, just to kind of give you a, a little picture of where we are here. So it's somewhere down kind of in this region in there. Is that critical for our theology? No, but it helps me to kind of get my mind around what's going on here. The book uh, of Job is considered wisdom. It's considered in the wisdom literature, so it's bundled in with things like lamentations and things like that, uh, which are wisdom. And it's actually written in a very, very ancient poetic style, a style of writing that went away soon after that. And as we get into it, we'll see that a lot of the things Job says are written in this poetic style. There's only eight main characters, okay? So there's God, there's Job, there's Job's wife, Okay, that's the main three. You can talk about Job's children, but until the very end, they're not named. Um, and then Job's friends. 
Job's friends play a really critical role in this. He's got three good friends in this, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, okay? Strange names, right? But we're going to see how they go out and they kind of give him um, some advice, some that's better than others. And then there's this other guy that comes in. We don't even know for sure where he comes from, but we know he's this cocky young dude, and his name is Elihu. And Elihu speaks into the situation too. Here's, a, here's kind of a quick picture, sort of a, just an illustration. We don't know if it looked like that for sure, but over on the right, obviously, Job, his clothes are torn. He's dirty. He's weak. He's not in a great place mentally right now. He's covered with boils, and, and he's just having a bad time of it. And on the left here, we have his friends. His friends looks much more comfortable, and they're obviously offering him advice. And this is advice is, man, that's a terrible thing that happened to you. What did you do wrong? There's got to be something that you did wrong. Job, of course, maintains his innocence throughout all this, but they're saying, now, if I were you, here's what I'd do. I'd repent, I'd offer sacrifice, and I'd look for what it is that I had done wrong, and I'd fix it. And this is what all his friends are doing. They're not suffering like him, but they're offering wisdom in their minds based on what they think is right in the situation. It's not necessarily terrible advice, but it fails to grasp what Job is going through. We're going to talk much more about that as we get into it. We do know that Job was very successful and that he was a godly man. We know that Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, again, start out like this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also, now, this is going to be significant later. We see at the very end where God not only restores but doubles his possessions, and there's something really interesting about his children that you don't see here, but we'll talk about that when we get into it. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. Now remember, Job himself was supposed to have written this. So he's a little, it sounds like he's a little full of himself right here. But it was very, very common to write in the third person. So it's not unlikely that he would have written this about himself. But it isn't just Job's opinion of himself. God speaks this about Job. Job 1 uh, verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So even God says there's no one like Job. He is blameless and he is upright. It's critical that we understand this idea, though. Blameless does not equal sinless. There was only one man who ever walked the face of the earth who was sinless, and that's Jesus Christ. Job, however, is blameless. And what's the difference? Blameless means without guilt. That's what that word translates into, without guilt. Without guilt means he lives a life of integrity. When he makes a mistake, he recognizes it, he repents, and he moves on. He lives a life of integrity, repentance, trusting in God. I think another important thing to understand is that we can be saved. We can be saved in Jesus Christ and not live a life that's blameless. We can be saved in Jesus and not live a life that's blameless. And this is important. We'll talk more about how important that is later. Being blameless doesn't guarantee that bad things will not happen to you. Certainly, Job is the most blameless, most upright, and still horrific things happen to him. It's not up to us when things happen to us like that, unless they're things that we've actively done. But the response to them is what's up to us. How we handle the painful, bad things that come our way, how we handle that is completely up to us. In fact, Jesus said, John chapter 16, verse 33, said this, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. That's, that just means trouble, pain, 
suffering. But take courage, I have overcome the world. He's not saying if something bad happens. He's saying it's going to. But he has overcome. And we're going to see how this thread of Jesus is all the way through the book of Job. Pain and trials are sure to come. But if you handle the trials and the pain and the suffering that come your way in a godly way, in an upright way, in a blameless way, a couple things happen. One is that you have no guilt that the enemy can then exploit against you. And you can also then be used by God, you as an example of someone who came through this painful trial. The more painful, the better the example of how God can use that then to have you help someone else. See, we see Jesus going through these trials and the, the, the crucifixion and all the things he went through. And sometimes we wonder, like, why do they have to be so graphic in the movies about how painful it was and how horrific that... Can't we just fast forward past that part where he goes through all these things? I think that's a big mistake because then we're tempted to go, sure, Jesus had a bad day, but it's not as bad as what I'm going through right now. And therefore, if his day was as bad as mine, maybe he wouldn't have acted like that. We see the same thing with Job. His trial is horrific. And it's that way on purpose because then nobody can say, yeah, but what he went through is not as bad as what I went through. But it's how we handle them, whether God can use them. How we handle them either produces guilt and shame or sin if we handle them incorrectly. But if we handle them the right way, God can use it. Either way, if we handle it incorrectly, it gives the enemy ammunition to use against us. And we'll see how even Job's friends are used against him in a way by the enemy. See, Satan and his demons are like rats. They're like rats. They feed on garbage. They feed on filth that's in our lives. And if we eliminate that garbage in our lives, they will starve. And they'll move on to somewhere else. The point is to make sure sin and guilt and blame and all those things that we're tempted to do when terrible things come our way give the enemy something to feed on. Let's starve him out. That's how we see Job doing this. So, the suffering of Christ now, we see this was so much more than just punching our ticket into heaven. It was an example, a literal earthly example of how we can live our lives and how, as Scripture says, we can take what the enemy intended for evil and use for good. How can that happen? If we do it the right way. 1 Peter chapter 2.21 says this, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. I know none of us want to literally follow in the steps of Jesus all the way through, but he is our example. And if we see that suffering as an example of how we can live, then we are able to see the things that come our way, not as a result of some horrible mistake we made, and not certainly as a win for Satan. Because that's not what it was here. Is it possible then that we could look at it as a way that God literally uses to call us into a place that we would never willingly go? But that's a higher place and it's a closer place to him. Would we be that desperate for him if we were allowed to stay in our comfort zone? Who here is ever in the comfort zone, times of blessing, times when things are fantastic and said, you know, I need to throw all that off and go suffer. No one ever says that. And I'm not recommending that you do that. I'm just saying there's a different way to look at those things when they come our way. It's God's grace pulling us closer to him by eliminating distractions. Let me give you a quick example. Have any of you ever either been severely ill yourself or had a loved one or a child or someone close to you been severely ill. I'm calling it like, like I had kidney stones. Anybody ever had kidney stones before? I was doubled up on the floor of the bathroom, and I didn't care about anything else until that pain was gone. 
I couldn't think of anything else. If you have a child or someone you love that's going through some pain, you are consumed with finding an end to that pain. Could we be, uh, possibly be as consumed with the search for God and an intimacy with Jesus unless we were in that kind of pain? Spiritual pain, maybe, but pain. I don't think we could. Could we possibly be that consumed if we're too comfortable with that search for a remedy to what's coming against us? The last scripture I have for you is this, Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Is it even possible to search for him with all of our heart if we're in a comfort zone? Possible maybe, certainly more difficult. I'm not saying that we should pray for pain. We know that that's going to come. What we should pray for is the strength to stand against it in a blameless and upright way and to glorify God through that and allow him to draw us closer. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, that you relentlessly pursue us and you will use, in your sovereignty, you will use anything and everything to draw us closer. And Father, while I certainly don't pray for pain for any of us, I pray that when those times come, when adversity and trials come our way, we are able to see them as a way to pull closer to you. See them as a way that you're using to eliminate distractions and draw us closer to you. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, your son given so that we don't have to stand guilty in front of you. Through the blood of Christ, we can be seen, we can be seen as righteous. But Lord, we want to glorify you in our actions. And so when those things come our way, let us see them for what they are. Let us eliminate garbage that the enemy can feed on. And just praise you for drawing us closer. Father, we love you and we praise you. And it's in your son, Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you're at home and you want to take communion with us, or if you're in here, we have communion supplies at the table that's in the back. So if you didn't grab them on the way in, you can do that now. But let's take communion together. As always, we have prayer team in the back. If you need prayer and you're in here in the building, you can go back there and see them and they will pray with you. At the crosses, you can pin note cards. We have note cards and push pins there. You can write a prayer request down at the cross and pin it to the cross and we'll pray over them. Our prayer team will will pray over them throughout the week. You can do that. Again, you can see a human being in the back. If you're online and you're out there listening to us, send us an email. Just prayer at discovercommunity.church and we will get those and we will pray over those as well. But if you want to join us in communion, take the body. It's so much more than just a little wafer or a piece of toast if you're at home. It represents the brokenness of Christ. It represents the broken body suffering extreme pain for you, willingly, maybe not gladly, but willingly giving that for you to pay the price that we so richly deserve, but also to be our example. If you agree with that, take the body. The blood of Christ is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant that says we will receive the Holy Spirit. And through that, we don't have to navigate life on our own because this cleanses us. The blood of Christ will cleanse us of sin so that the accuser has nothing to accuse us against with in front of God and it allows us then access to the Father that we would have no other way and if you accept that then take the blood
Father God, we thank you for your mercy. Help us to see things the way that you see them. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Sing how great 